We're going to transition now to our time in the text uh, this evening. We're going to continue our series in the book of Romans, uh, Romans part one. We're looking at the first several chapters of Romans this uh, kind of semester of our year. Uh, And as we have been unpacking these first few chapters of Romans, we keep hitting on this idea of bad news. Last week we called it the bad news. Uh, And in chapter one, verses 18 through 32, Paul convicts humanity saying that humanity has rebelled against God, has worshipped other things besides God himself. And then there's this worship problem we have where we want to worship created things instead of the creator, and that mankind is without excuse. And I told you last week that Paul was focusing on the most extreme cases of pagan sin. And in a sense, he was laying a trap for those of us that are conservative religious people. And so I warned you, for those of you that are conservative religious people, Um, that the trap was coming, right? Uh, And so this week we're calling it in chapter 2, bad news for the religious. Bad news for the religious. We're going to look at just the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs, and we'll be on page 940 in those black Bibles. encourage you to follow along there. We'll put the verses on the screen, but we also just want to kind of train you to get used to opening up that that Bible, get used to uh, reading it closely. There's a movie that came out about 20, 25 years ago called Chocolat, and it was about this very interesting woman that kind of blows into town in a mysterious way and opens up a chocolate shop. Problem is, this woman is a pagan. She's an unbeliever. She's a sinner. And so the mayor of this little town, who is a very strict religious person, is very bothered by what she's doing. He's bothered by the influence that she's having on the city. And so in this movie, it's a contrast between two characters. You've got the fun-loving, mysterious pagan woman who's bringing chocolate and fun to everybody's life, parties, good times. And then you've got this strict, judgmental, difficult, religious leader who's the mayor of the city. And he's shown to be hypocritical and difficult and really just mean. And if you are a conservative religious person in your country, you've probably become somewhat sensitive to the ways in which conservative Christian religious people are painted in the media. And I would say it has become a problem and it it does get frustrating that oftentimes Christian conservative people are painted as hypocritical, judgmental, and mean. And so I would agree with the critique But I also want to say that we need to kind of slow down a little bit when we see those portrayals in the media. We need to slow down and and check our own heart, that that there's a reason that those kind of characters are portrayed in the media, and that's because that kind of character exists in the real world. And Paul is going to give a similar conviction to us in chapter 2. He's going to say it's not all roses in the religious world. He's going to say, as a matter of fact, in a lot of ways, religious people are just as bad as non-religious people. And the difference isn't the external trappings of religion. The difference is your own heart, your own faith. I think it's interesting the timing of what the Lord has given us here with this text, because I think it has a lot to say to the majority culture, minority culture issues that are at play in our culture. Um, One of the big difficulties is that sometimes when there's things that appear to be injustices in our culture and people are upset by that, majority culture responds with self-justifying postures, right? So maybe you're right, majority culture, in self-justifying. But 
that's not sympathetic. That's not listening. That's not suffering with those who suffer. And so I think there's some parallel. Obviously, it's not the same thing exactly, but I think there's some lessons for us to learn, even with all the political chaos that, that we're going through right now. I think there's this uh, posture of humility that we need to learn. Doesn't mean we're wrong about everything and we give up the culture fight, right, as conservative people. It, it just means there's, there's some legitimate things that people are doing wrong, and we need to hear that. We need to recognize that. So, so let's look at the text. It's Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Um, and, and I just want to say, uh, I'm trying to bring you as, as clearly as possible what Paul is saying here. Um, this is not my uh, particular agenda or like uh, political ideas. This is what I believe the text is saying. And we'll, I'm going to try to prove that to you tonight. Um, so I'm not just trying to beat up on you guys, all right? So chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let me pray for us and I'll ask that God would help us to uh, be tender to his word. Um, God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts I pray that you would remove any distractions so that we would hear what you have to say to us. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would meet us here, that we would see your kindness, and it would lead us to repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we uh, attack the text and try to kind of work through what it says, the, the first thing that I think we uncover here is the idea that religious people are just like pagans. And so this is my first point. Religious people are just like pagans. Um, And so throughout the sermon tonight, I'm going to be kind of picking on religious people, but I I want you to understand that I'm I'm putting myself there, right? I've been uh, a follower of Jesus for 25 years. I've been actively involved in church life for 25 years. Uh, And so I consider myself to be a part of this group that Paul is now uh, turned his guns on, so to speak. Okay, so I'm speaking sympathetically as, as a part of this group. But there's an important way that religious people are just like pagans. Let's look at verse 1 here in the text. He says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So Paul purposefully uses the same phrase he just used last week at the end of chapter 1 on the pagan people, right? And so Paul painted this picture of obvious pagan rebellion. Um, what he detailed was sexual immorality. And so I, I told you last week he was setting a trap for the religious people by laying out sins that the religious conservative people would say, yes, Paul, 
absolutely, those are terrible, grotesque sins. And he was laying a trap for those people because now he's saying those people who were without excuse for denying God as the creator and participating in sexual immorality, he's saying now the same thing to the religious people. He's saying, you are also without excuse. Why are we also without excuse? He says, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So he says it's because we're judging. We're judging others, and we're doing the same things. Now, if, if you're like me, the first time I read this, first several times I read this, I said, no, Paul, I'm not doing the same things. You're wrong, right? Is there a part of you that wants to say, no, Paul, I don't walk outside and see creation and deny God as creator. I'm not doing that. And you've detailed sexual immorality in chapter 1. I'm not doing that, right? So Paul, therefore, I'm the good guy. They're the bad guys, right? But Paul's saying, you're doing the same thing. How are, how are we doing the same thing? I, I grabbed a picture of two animals that don't look the same, but they are the same, okay? Here's two animals, and they are the very same thing, right? These are both dogs. One of them looks like a moose. One of them looks like a rat but they're both dogs, right? Both dogs, same species, they can breed. They're the same. They look different, but they're the same. Paul's saying the same thing about religious people and pagan people. He's saying all humans are the same. All human beings are the same. He goes on in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And again, you want to say, well, Paul, I don't do those things. I'm not denying you as creator. I'm not participating in sexual immorality. You suppose, O oh man, verse 3, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? So remember last week I gave you some hints about how technically Paul was laying the trap, right? Last week, Paul talked in detail about sexual immorality, but then he started giving a laundry list of sins, and he listed things like gossip. Do religious people gossip? Yeah, he listed boasting. Do religious people boast? Sadly, re- religious people, we probably boast in our religiosity, right? In our self-righteousness. He, he listed um, these other sins that are heart sins. He talked about coveting. Co- coveting literally means to desire something that's not yours. It's the last commandment, right? Just in case you think you can keep the commandments, God gives you one that you absolutely cannot keep. The 10th commandment, he says, oh, and by the way, don't ever want anything that's not yours. Okay? So Paul says, you're just like the pagans. How are you just like the pagans? You're a sinner. Maybe you don't explicitly walk outside and deny that God is creator like the pagans do and worship created things in an explicit way, but whenever you disobey God at any level, you're doing the same things. I don't know if if you're like me, but when you hear non-Christians quote Jesus from Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged, does that kind of get under your skin? drives me crazy, right? Because I I pretty much know every time a non-Christian quotes that verse at a religious or Christian or conservative person, I'm like, man, you don't, you've never read the Bible. You're taking that out of context. You don't know what you're saying. Read the rest of the Bible, right? Like, don't just quote one verse over and over and over again. But as I was studying this text this week, I was like, well, that's the verse Paul uses against religious people, right? And so there, there might be a good point that when Non-religious people wag that verse at religious people. 
Maybe they are taking it out of context sometimes. Maybe they don't really know the Bible. But Paul would say that is the main problem that religious people have. This is exactly where Paul aims the arrow, right here. And I I remember hearing this growing up as well. I remember hearing, well, judge not lest you be judged. That's fine, but there are times we should judge because later on in Matthew chapter 7, he says you you should judge people by their fruit. Y'all know that passage? It's just like 10 verses later in Matthew 7. Problem is, it's, it's a different Greek word. That's just the King James translation uses judge twice. It's two totally different words. I did a word search of, of judge. Judge is always kind of this formal word. It's always this, this word that is like a judge rendering a verdict. It's often translated condemn. And so there is a sense in which we don't want to be relativists. We still want to believe in truth, right? And we, at that level, maybe judge, say, this is right, this is wrong. We believe the scriptures. We can trust them. So we're not going to become relativists, right? But that's generally not how the word judge is used in Scripture. The word judge, judge not lest you be judged, is used in this kind of sense, where you're saying, you're a bad person because you do sin X and Y, I just do sins A and B, which of course are not a big deal, so you're going to hell and I'm okay, because I belong to the good culture, you belong to the bad culture, and we separate ourselves and we say, "I'm, I'm better than you because my sins aren't as obvious and grotesque as yours are. Paul is saying, you're a sinner too. You do the same things. Like, maybe not these sins, but you do those sins. So we're all sinners. So Paul's trying to hammer this point home. And my my heart question for us, this is my heart question, again, for me as well as you. I'm not trying to attack you. the, The word is attacking my heart as it's attacking your heart. Is What are those sins that you put in a special category and you say those sins are unforgivable? And then what are the sins in your own life that you say, but these are just fine and they're just not that big a deal? I just want you to pray and ask that the Spirit would show you that in your own life. Because Paul is saying you can't categorize one or the other. All sin is sin. James 2.10 is a helpful verse to memorize. It says if you've broken the law in one point, You've broken all of it. It's, it's all or nothing. It's an all or nothing deal. And so that's what Paul means when he says we're just like pagans. Religious people are just like pagans. We're not somehow better. We're just, we're just like them. We do the same things. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. We do the same thing. And what, what are those same things? Well, we sin. We sin. We don't perfectly live up to God's standards for our life. We deny him as God. We have other gods that we place on the throne before him. Again, we don't do it explicitly often, right? If we're religious, if you're here, I I, I guarantee most of you don't have a false idol on your mantle that you're worshiping explicitly, right? But every time you break a commandment, you're you're bowing to another god. So we all do it. I do it, you do it, we, we we all sin. Paul's trying to paint us into this corner of recognizing how bad things really are. So we'll never really see the gospel otherwise. Without this bad news, it'll be the gospel of me. It'll be the gospel of my own religiosity, my own faithfulness, instead of the gospel of Jesus. But the next point that Paul wants us to see is that religious people must repent of their strength. We must repent of our strength. Look at verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 and 5 says it this way. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing 
that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So God's kindness to you, this is another way I would say it, the circumstantial blessings in your life should lead you to have a soft and tender heart towards God. They shouldn't lead you to bow up and say, look at all the blessing. I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm all right. They should lead you to have a soft and humble and brokenhearted posture before God. So let me read it again. He's saying, do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And we just want to translate, because this word gets thrown around sometimes in popular culture. Penance is an idea from medieval theology of, of like paying your dues to make up for something you did wrong, right? Repentance is a different word. It, it means turning. Literally, it's turn of mind in the Greek, and uh, in a biblical worldview, the, the turn of mind leads to a turn of life, right? But, but it just means taking your faith out of the false god to put your faith into the real Savior. So he's saying, his kindness to you should lead you to turn and let go of faith in your own religiosity, faith in your own strength, faith in your own faithfulness. Verse 5 makes this more explicit. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So unpacking this, it's helpful to again look back at last week, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, where he said God's wrath is presently being revealed. So God's wrath is revealed in outright pagans engaging in obvious and public sin, and God's wrath is them being given over. Remember that phrase? We heard that again and again. God gives them over to their sin. And he says, okay, your will be done. You can have the sin. We hit rock bottom, and he's saying, so for the religious person, his wrath may be hidden now. We may not see his wrath in the present time, right? So for the pagan, there's in a sense grace in that wrath being poured out now because it's visible and it's seen and it's felt. But for the religious person, there's maybe a shielding from that present wrath because you're, you're obeying his God, God's law in 80% of your life, right? You're, you've got some kind of stability. You've got some kind of blessing in your life because it's good. There is real good and blessing when we do what's right. This is Roberta shared earlier in her testimony. That there are really good things happen when we do what's right, when we obey. There, there's real genuine good there. But that can cause us to miss the, the deeper need of salvation in Christ. Because we think, yeah, I'm, I'm obedient, and that's enough. I'm obedient. I'm 80% obedient. Everything's fine. I don't really have a heart problem. I don't really need Jesus. So he says, wrath is being stored up on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed because of our hard and impenitent heart. Uh, the word hard can be translated tough or strong, right? You have a strong heart, you have an iron will, you more disciplined than the next person. That's, that's the curse and blessing of being a religious person. It's a great blessing because you enjoy success in life, right? If, if you go to bed early and wake up early and work hard and brush your teeth and you're honest and you do things right, there are real, genuine blessings. But I would say even honor God because God's made the universe to work that way. So if you're living out the Proverbs life, that's, that's good. So don't hear me the wrong way. Don't hear me saying, you should disobey God. No, obeying God is, is good and there's real blessings there. But it can, it can veil to you your need for a Savior because you can start to think your obedience is enough can start to think your obedience is enough and not recognize that you have this strong, tough 
heart, hard heart that needs to repent. The other word is impenitent. So you have this tough heart, you have this impenitent heart. You have a heart that's not yielding, a heart that thinks you're enough. You've learned to obey the rules. You've learned to do things right. You see the return on investment. You see the ROI coming back to you as an investor. I've invested in a Proverbs life. I'm obeying God's law. I'm doing things well. And you miss the sin in your own heart. You miss your own neediness. Again, James 2.10 says, if you've broken any part of God's law, you've broken his law, right? We're all, we're all guilty. We do the same thing as the pagans. It's just not as obvious. So we can, we can miss it. I, I grabbed a picture here, and I know this is like over-the-top offensive, but we'll just go for it anyway. Here are the Nazis. Um, the reason I'm using this as an illustration is because I was uh, finishing up the book on the life of Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a famous pastor in Germany when the Nazi regime took over, and so I highly recommend his biography. It's really well done by Eric Metaxas, um, and it just kind of works through his life and how he struggled with it. What, what does a proper faithful response look like as a Christian in that society when everything was on, uh, coming apart under Hitler? What really stuck in my mind with the latest chapter I was reading was he talks about the, the allure of the Nazis was their strength. Right, like Germany had been crushed in World War One. They had failed miserably. They were um, struggling. They were poor. Society had had broken down, and so there was a lure there in the Nazis' leadership. They were willing to break these other laws because of success, because people were drawn in by they were they were winning again. Right, they were succeeding. They were looking strong again. And I just want to encourage you that we, we as, as followers of Christ, need to be entrusting ourselves to him, not our own strength. Not our own strength. We need to repent of our own strength because our only boast should be in him and what he's done for us. So again, don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm, I'm for traditional culture. I'm for obeying the law. But all of that has to come out of a life of repentance. Uh, a humility of recognizing I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And I should only obey God's law because I love him, because he's good, because the kindness he's shown me in Jesus. But if I'm obeying God's law to save myself, to put him in my debt somehow, then I've missed it. Then I've missed it. And that's what Paul's trying to get us to see. So the next thing that Paul hits, final thing that he hits here, is that religious people get no special favors. Religious people get no special favors. Um, let's look at the text in verses 6 through 11. He says it this way. He will render to each one according to his works. Uh, and he's going to clarify that this goes for everybody. Religious people, non-religious people. Everybody, same boat. To his works. Verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking... And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. Does he qualify that? Does he say those who 60% of the time do the best they can, there will be eternal life? No, he says it's, it's one or the other. It's binary. Absolute holiness inherits eternal life. And any kind of selfishness, that, that inherits wrath and fury. He goes on. Verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth. Obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress, 
tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So he repeats that, repeats that phrase, Jew and Greek, right? What does that mean in Paul's theology? Jew and Greek means it's for everybody. Remember he said in chapter one, he said, salvation is for all. It's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And now He's laid the trap. He's turned it around on us and says, you know what? Salvation is for all, Jew and Greek, because the bad news is for all. The Greek and the Jew have both rejected God. We've just done it in our own peculiar cultural ways. The way I would say it in today's modern language is the religious person and the unreligious person. We've all rejected God. We've just done it in our unique ways. So so we can reject God as uh, hypocritical, judgmental religious people. We obey God most of the time, and sure, we're better than those pagan people, but we're still rejecting God. Or we can reject God, full bore, running full speed, trying to get away from God as fast as we can, denying him openly. Paul's saying we're all guilty. We're all under judgment. He ends with verse 11, for God shows no partiality. God doesn't judge by the face of things, is the way that reads in the Greek, I grabbed a picture of the symbol of blind justice here. Uh, probably you've seen something like this at a courthouse. It's a pretty common symbol of justice. The idea is that there are scales that weigh whether the deeds are good or bad. And then there's a blindfold because justice isn't looking at your membership card or what color your skin is or what neighborhood you grew up in or what culture you belong to. Justice is not looking at those things. Justice is weighing your deeds. And Paul is trying to drive home here to the religious people that you're not to compare yourself to the pagan. Right? You're not saved by being a little bit more holy than the next person. That's not what saves us. That would be a self-salvation. You know, you've heard the joke. I think I just shared this one the other day. I don't know. I, I, you know, talked to so many people in different circumstances, I can't remember. But you've heard the joke, how do you survive uh, a bear attack, right? You just need to be faster than the person that's with you, right? So that's, that's kind of the holiness of a religious person. Well, I'm more holy than that guy, God, right? That's not holiness. That's not holiness. That's, that's not the purity that God is seeking. And so, again, Paul is trying to, to press us to see that there is a very real wrath and fury poured out on our particular, maybe not as big a deal sin that we practice as religious people. But God, I'm not as bad as that person, right? You talked about just that grotesque, pagan, sexual immorality, all that stuff in chapter 1. I'm not doing that, God. It's still sin. We, we still are under God's judgment. And so the good news, again, as Paul started out with in chapter 1, the good news is for everyone because the bad news is for everyone. So we get no special favors by, by being in this building, right? We get no special favors by being a, a part of a more religious culture than the non-religious people. And we need to recognize that. because we're not, we're not saved by our faithfulness. We're saved by Christ's faithfulness. We're saved by what he's done. I want to wrap up. By just taking this, this concept of judgment and, and, and playing it out a little bit for you. 
Paul makes a big deal at the beginning that part of our guilt lies in our judging others. He says, when you judge others, you, you show that you're guilty too, because whenever you're judging others, you're, you're guilty as well, right? Because none of us are perfect. What's interesting is that in the book of Acts, the apostles, when they're preaching Jesus, repeatedly say, Jesus will come back as the judge of the universe. Based on his resurrection from the dead, he's qualified to judge me and to judge you. He's qualified to do that. He is king of the universe. He's the one that's risen from the dead, that's conquered sin and death once and for all, and he's coming back to judge. But what's interesting is in, in John chapter, chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to one of the leading religious people in his day, he's talking to this guy named Nicodemus, who was a religious teacher. Nicodemus is baffled by the things that Jesus said, and there's you know, famous part in there where Jesus says, you've got to be born again. You know, it's, it's not enough to just be this great religious person, this great religious leader. You need completely new life, alien life. You need the Holy Spirit to, to blow in from the outside and take over your life. And we have the famous passage in John 3.16 that many of us have uh, at least mostly memorized where he says that God so loved the world that he, that he sent his only son, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but would have eternal life. So famous verse, many of us, if you've not memorized it, at least you've heard it before, right? But Jesus goes on after that verse in John 3, 17, he says, for Jesus, he says, for the Son of God didn't come into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world. It's that that same word. And so the the picture is that Jesus is coming back to judge the world, but, but when he came and he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live, and he died that sacrificial death for us on the cross, he came not judging, but bearing the judgment of God. And so we all judge, and we all want to put ourselves in the place of judge. And only Jesus is the actual judge, and the actual judge of the universe said, I'll, I'll take your judgment for you. I'll, I'll take your judgment upon myself on the cross. And so Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross, and he gives us his righteousness. And that's the good news of the gospel. The bad news is that even for us religious people, we can't be saved by our own religiosity. We can't be saved by our own faithfulness. We're in the same bad news boat as Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. But the good news is that Jesus took the bad news for us. He is our gospel. He is our good news. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship together. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have shown us that love clearly in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So God, even as we tremble at the idea of a coming day of wrath, a coming day of judgment, I pray that you would help us to throw ourselves at your mercy, to entrust ourselves to your grace and your kindness. And God, I pray that that would make us different. That would make us the kind of people that that love our neighbor, whether they're religious or pagan, no matter what they are like. God, help us to love others the way you loved us first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.